From KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, now in our 18th year on the air and still the only program on radio dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. For anyone of any generation who has had a job, one of the very first questions that you ask is, what will be my wage? That's our topic today for this program, and my very special guest is author Dr. Donald Stabile, whose book, The Living Wage, Lessons from the History of Economic Thought, will be our focus. And I think the idea behind a living wage is to at least get people started off at a, at a decent level so they can, they can have, have a good life and, and to protect some people who aren't able to get into a position where there is some kind of upward mobility. What was your first wage? We'll begin right after the news. Hi, everyone. I'm Phil Marriage, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Wages and the living wage is our topic this program. Recently, there's been quite a bit of attention given to what we earn, the disparity of wages, the social and the politics surrounding the topic, and even the secrecy many have in sharing what we do earn. My guest is Dr. Donald Stabile. On sabbatical right now from St. Mary's College in Maryland, where he is professor of economics since 1980, and he has authored two books we'll be talking about. The first is The Living Wage Lessons from the History of Economic Thought, and he's also authored The Political Economy of the Living Wage, Progressives, The New Deal, and Social Justice. And he's now working on another book, and he's joining us today from Fort Pierce, Florida. Dr. Sibyl, welcome to our discussion today. Thank you. Nice to be here. I want to begin with really your first book. In the times of our living generations, and, and really right now we have, still we have some GIs and silent member uh, generation members. We have a lot of boomers. We have a lot of Xers, ton of millennials, and our really young people really haven't quite got a name put on them for sure yet. But for those living generations, we really seem to have forgotten the social origins of the living wage. Uh, what can you tell us from your studies there? What is really the genesis of the living wage? Where does it come from? Well, it starts out quite a few generations ago, actually. It, it was a basic tenet of Christianity in the Middle Ages. They had a concept of a just wage. And the idea behind the just wage was that when a person was hiring somebody, both of them were supposed to act under the golden rule and treat each other fairly. And that sort of meant that the purchaser, the one trying to hire somebody, would take into account, well, how much does this person need to survive when I think about how much I'm going to pay them? And then the person who was trying to get the job would suddenly think, well, you know, I have to think, what other costs does this person have? I have to take into account all of that. So the idea is that they could sit down together and and work out kind of a just wage that would be um, amenable to both of them. That worked fine in the Middle Ages when everybody was in a small village. But as the economy grew and cities sprung up, it got a little bit more complicated. And so the next person who came along to really think about this was Adam Smith, who's well-known as the kind of father of economics. And Smith wrote his book, The Wealth of Nations, in 1776. And he came up with the idea that, well... When you have large numbers of people and they can't know everything about each other, it's a kind of a world of strangers, the market buying and selling is probably the best way to do it. 
And but you can rely on the market because when people act in their own self-interest, they're going to figure out. Well, if I want to produce a product and make some money at it, I have to figure out what it is that people need, so I know what to produce. And so it wasn't as though they were just, um, you know, trying to figure out a way to cheat their their customers. They really had to find out what they needed to know. And for Smith, this was a a big change because, again, before that, uh, when people wanted to make a lot of money, looting and pillaging was usually the way they went about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, this is this main point in all this, is that the way to make money is to produce something that people want to buy. Well, then how did that translate into hiring workers? Well, Smith said, well, here again, what has to happen is that when you hire somebody, you really need to pay them a a wage that will enable them to continue to live and to raise children. Because if they aren't able to live and raise children, you're going to run out of um, workers. And this is the argument that I refer to in my book as the sustainability argument. That, you know, you need to, if, if you're going to keep hiring people, you need to have a workforce that keeps reproducing itself. Now, Smith and recognized that, you know, workers had to be careful in this because if they took all their extra money that they made from getting higher wages, if they got them, they might have too many children and the next generation would kind of suffer a decline in income because the supply of labor would be too high. But he thought that they would do that. And as a side note, that idea that Smith said may sound familiar because um, Robert Malthus read that section of Smith's book and came up with his whole population theory. Smith then says, okay, that's fine. We, people need to have enough money to raise, raise their family. But they need a little bit more than that. And he kind of says what they sort of need is to be able to buy what it is that is necessary for someone to have a decent life and feel respectable. And in his day, he talked about clothing, that, yeah, you know, you don't, it's not right, you know, you need to get paid enough so you can afford to wear decent clothes. So that's one of the big issues in a living wage. And I kind of call this a capability approach because you have to be capable to engage in social affairs. And to do that, you have to have what it needs to be respectable. The problem with this, I call that the decency element, is that it's a moving target. If we think about it today, or if we compare from, say, the past generation to the current generation, what is it that people feel they need to have to be to be respectable? A lot of and a lot of that has changed because what was needed, oh, back in the 1930s, you know, we have some, some nice clothes, a nice house, maybe a car, a radio, indoor plumbing. That was about it. That was probably some of the basic things that you needed to have. What do we think of now as needed to, in order to feel respectable? <laughs> I guess a cell phone is one thing, isn't it? <laughs> a cell phone or and even probably a smartphone. Yeah. Uh, would be one, whatever high tech high tech running shoes, tattoos. I don't know. That's that that 
that's 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 a generational thing mm-hmm. but uh, but apparently so there's a whole range of things and so this is one of the one of the issues that Smith kind of raised about the living wage is well it's it's a moving target so it's hard to say oh well living wage should be you know twenty eight thousand five hundred and thirty two dollars a year because it's going to vary from time to time and place to place. Mm-hmm. If you're in an area where it's expensive to live in New York City, you're going to need a living wage not only for your basics, food, clothing, and shelter, but also for that decency thing because you're going to have to, you know, look respectable in a city where there are a lot of respectable people. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking you, when you're talking about the medieval times. Um, I, I want to jump way forward a couple of hundred years or more than that, actually. Uh, to my grandfather was a coal miner in Mid-State Illinois, and I, I know that there's even been songs about the company store. Mm-hmm. Did the uh, medieval time operate under what we would understand as the company store type of thinking? No, not not really, because in the in the Middle Ages, it was more a case where, you know, somebody might own a store and just hire a clerk to work in the store or something like that, or someone might be an artisan, um, you know, I don't know, making shoes by hand who would hire an assistant um, to kind of train them to make shoes by hand. So there, there wouldn't be much of that going on. That that was kind of probably an invention of capitalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, jump ahead with us then uh, uh, towards the beginning of, let's say, World War One, World War Two. What's happening then with the uh, living wage? Okay. Well, what happened in the U.S. <clears throat> is um, there was, in a way, sort of a return to this religious view in that in 1906, uh, Monsignor uh, John Ryan wrote a book called The Living Wage. And it became fairly popular and influential. And so by the 1920s, right after World War um, I, there became a real strong interest in the living wage. And the people who were interested in it ranged from businessmen such as Edward Filene, the Filene's department store, uh, Gerard Swope, who was the president of General Electric. They were all interested in the idea behind the living wage, and they had another view on this capability approach. They believed that if you pay workers a higher wage, they'll be happier, healthier, and more productive. And so they thought it was just common sense um, to pay workers a living wage. Another person, again, this is a, a generational thing, um, who was interested was an economist named Paul Douglas. And he... He actually wrote a book called The Family Wage, talking about the ins and outs of the living wage. Well, he he later became the senator from Illinois. I don't know if you remember him. Actually, I'm old enough to remember him, yes. Um, but he was an economist who had an interest in the living wage before um, he became a politician and got elected to the Senate. So, so there was a whole push in the 1920s and they came up with what I call a formula that you want to get help to help workers get a living wage. You need the government because you just can't rely on people being moral enough to do it on their own. 
So you need the government to come in and help by, one, helping union, uh, workers form unions and engage in collective bargaining, because that would they, it was thought most of that time that businesses had too much bargaining power compared to the individual worker. And so workers had to form unions to kind of get some more bargaining power. And if they did that, they could probably get a, a living wage that way. The second thing they said the government could do is pass minimum wage laws, which would kind of set a floor that says, nope, wages can't below, go below a certain level. And then the third thing they came up with was that, you know, workers would get a living wage, but then there are other things that they need to take care of, like um, health care, unemployment, and and old-age pensions. So that's when they said that. And they also need to have social, what they call social insurance. Well, all of this translated into the New Deal, where three of the main reforms for labor were the National Labor Relations Act, which set up a process for forming unions, the Social Security Act, which um, set forth um, pensions for the elderly and unemployment insurance, and the Fair Labor Standards Act, which did create a minimum wage. Let's come back to those just uh, in just a minute. We're talking about wages and the living wage today here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. We'll be right back after this break. We are back. I'm Phil Marriage, along with my special guest, Dr. Donald Stabile, professor of, at St. Mary's College in Maryland and, and author of The Living Wage, Lessons from the History of Economic Thought, and also the other book, The Political Economy of a Living Wage, Progressives, The New Deal, and Social Justice. And he's working on sabbatical now on his next book, and he's joining us from Fort Pierce, Florida today. Dr. Stabile, I just mentioned that about the uh, progressives, the New Deal, the social justice, and that's kind of where you left off in the last segment. Can you go a little bit more of where we are in the history of this thing? Well, so then what happened is that the um, during the New Deal, they did pass this legislation, but it didn't get the job done completely. You know, collective bargaining enabled some workers to form unions, and so in the 1930s, there was this big upsurge. The um, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which formed what were called industrial unions that tried to organize factory workers, really launched a lot of organizing campaigns, and they were very successful in, in getting unions formed in the steel industry, the auto industry, the textile industry, and that did help boost wages. The Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, but at the time it was passed, there were a lot of occupations that were exempted from it, and so it didn't do quite as good a job. And the same thing, the Social Security Act was passed, and that got people unemployment insurance when they needed it, as well as pensions, but there, too, only about half the workforce was covered by it. And how many years are you talking about there that it took to get from point A to point B where you were just talking there? Was it just a couple of years, or did it take, how long did it take? Well, in the Roosevelt New Deal, these three three big reforms took place within a three-year window. The National Labor Relations Act and Social Security Act were in 1935 and the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938. What was the political attitude of the people then to allow them to get so much done in such a short period of time compared to now, if we were trying to do that now? I think at the time, because this was during the Great Depression, when there was a lot of unemployment and wages were falling, and, and it was hoped that 
this plan where these things were cited as not only was they good to give workers a living wage, but that would be good for the economy because it would give people more money to spend. And so I think a lot of people, and I've kind of read some of Roosevelt's fireside chats, and he had a very good way of explaining all this to people, I think, in a way that was persuasive. But the problem was the Great Depression didn't end. And so, and then what happened instead, we got into World War II, and that is what effectively ended the Great Depression, that the government spending at a very high level, plus taking, oh, you know, 15 million people out of the labor force and putting them into the military and a variety of things created a full employment economy and then actually a booming economy as a result of that. And so what they learned from that was here was another arsenal that could help with wages, that if the government, and this follows the lessons of the writings of John Maynard Keynes, if the government would just spend money on things whenever the economy gets into a recession, that could help recovery recover and that would also help pull wages up. Are you saying that during that time frame, up until World War II, there was a uh, social thinking, I guess you'd say, of, of the country or a path we were following that changed at World War II, and we really have abandoned whatever the initial inertia was to get over to try and get us out of the uh, Depression? What happened in, in before the Great Depression most everybody, including economists, sort of believed in free enterprise and the free market system. And that Adam Smith view that you just let people produce what they think will sell the most and that will take care of everything. But during the Great Depression, that didn't seem to be working. Now, there's a lot of debate among economists about this. There are some economists that said, well, Part of the Great Depression was because the government interfered too much in the economy. But at the time, everybody wanted the government to do something. Even some of the, you know, I've read some of the kind of free market comments at the time saying, well, you know, things are pretty dramatic. 25% of the workforce is unemployed. Wages are down by 25%. This is pretty awful. Yeah, something's got to be done, and the government needs to figure something out to do it. And But part of the problem was everybody thought at the time, basic idea was the government should balance its budget. And so they worried about too much government spending. And the only time an economist recognized this, that they could justify a lot of spending, was, was during a war. So when the war came, that kind of convinced a lot of people, oh, well, yeah, government spending can work, and maybe we can figure out a way to do this in peacetime as well. Well, now, was there a parallel growth with the unions you started to talk about earlier and the and the oncoming uh, World War II as it affected the wages and economy? In other words, did the growth of unions get a boost from that period of time? Yes, the, the unions got... They started growing in the um, in the 1930s, and then during the war, what happened is the government actually said, 
during the course of the war, we're going to have wage and price controls. No, nobody's going to get a pay increase. Nobody's going to price increase unless we approve it. Um, but what they said to unions is, but in your case, what we're going to let you do is we're going to let you still go out and organize workers. You can't promise them higher wages, but you can promise them that if they join your union, you know, you'll help them get higher wages when the war is over. And that worked very well to increase union membership. So by the end of by the end of the war, unions had organized maybe 25% of the workforce. And unions were also important politically because they also, they kept pushing, they were all in favor of the living wage. They thought it was a great idea. And so they kept pushing for programs that would help improve wages, not only for union members, but even for the people who weren't members of the unions. And so they pushed, for example, for always increasing the minimum wage. It was a very important thing to do is that you need to keep increasing the minimum wage. What would the uh, wages the, or the minimum wage have been about that time? Do you have an idea what, what a person would yes. be earning? When the Fair Labor Standard Act was passed, the minimum wage was set at 40 cents an hour. 0. 0.40, 40 cents. 40 cents, yep. <laughs> that, that, that tells us how much... You know, things have changed. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> and it wasn't changed finally in, and it, was, it turned out it was, it was a politically difficult. It took several years to get it changed. And in 1949, it was increased to 75 cents. Okay. Now, adjusted for inflation, however, I'll say that the minimum wage of 40 cents an hour in 1938 would be the equivalent of about $7 an hour now. So it's not that different from where it is. Well, let me let me ask you this. Now, I was, um, in my youth, I was, uh, well, I shouldn't say youth, I was about uh, 18, 19, 20 years old at the time. I began working in construction, I, and I became a, a member of the Carpenters Union in mid-state Illinois. And I was a union member there for quite a while. And the thing about the unions that, um, and I want to get to this, uh, have you uh, expand on this as, as you want to and, and wherever you want to say it, but I, was, I knew as a first-year apprentice I was going to make so much. It was, I think, about $3 an hour, I think, if I remember right. A second year would make this. A third year would make that. A fourth year would make that. A journeyman would make whatever a journeyman wage was. It might have been 7 or $8 an hour then. Of course, it was quite a while ago. But the point I'm trying to get at is I knew what I would be making compared to my coworkers. Uh, was that prev- was that also um, a part of the beginning of the living wage that people knew what other- everybody was making? Or when did the secrecy part co- come in? Oh, about wages? Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at where we are now, people don't talk about how much they make next to their, their person they may have been working with for 10 or 15 years, they don't know how much that person is making. They don't talk about it. Um, well, yeah, and I think that's, um, with unions, I think it's pretty clear. And, and what unions always push for, they called it a concept of economic security. And that is so you would know, like, for the next three or four years, how much you were going to make. And you could plan your life accordingly. You know, so that 
that if you're thinking, well, you know, I want to buy a house, but I can't afford it right now, but, you know, in three years, I'm going to be making enough money where I can afford it. So right. maybe I should... Maybe I should. Maybe it's okay to, to buy it now because I'm going to be making more money in three or four years. And that was the whole idea that unions had. And so, and unions then would set up a yeah, what they call the union scale. I'm sure right. You've, right. You've seen that. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, when I first um, went to work after college, I worked in the financial industry writing um, reports for Standard & Poor's, and we were also unionized, the American Newspaper Guild. And same thing. We had, you know, a set a set scale of what we were going to be making um, over the next, over the term of the contract, and then they would come in and negotiate a new contract for another three years, and we would sort of know what we were going to be getting paid there, too. Now, what is what what is that aspect of the living wage? I think personally, I kind of think that was good to know what everyone around you was making. It kind of helped you understand just what you said before. When can I afford to buy a car or a house or whatever? What I'm thinking though is that in companies where we didn't have that union scale, people probably didn't know as much about what everybody else made. Mm-hmm. That it was. You know that people kind of you know, keep keep it sort of secret. At my college, for example, we're a public institution, even though we're called St. Mary's. There's a long history in that, but our salaries are public information, and so every year somebody finds out where that information is and they kind of publish it. Well, it makes some people feel kind of uneasy that somebody's going to know what they're making and they get to know what somebody else made. What, they're making more than me? That's not right. (laughs) And so so I think there's some case where there's not a union because I think my memory of the union scale is everybody who was in the first year made the same amount of money. Right. Me too. And most places, like at a college, the amount of money you earn and you're paid depends on what discipline you're in. Because some disciplines, it's easy to hire people. Other disciplines, it's harder to hire people. And and so you have to offer them more money to get them to come in. Understandable. So that, caused, right. that caused, again, I think we, you, what we would call some um, wage stratification. And a lot of people aren't easy with that. And so they, don't, they, they kind of don't like knowing about it. And it's also true in that kind of organization. You know, such as a college, yeah, you never know what your pay is going to be three years down the road. And so, yeah, and, and I can kind of say, yeah, it's a lot harder to plan. Right. Well, even when I became a, a, a journeyman, uh, I, I knew that we were going to get uh, raises every now and then because the union would work for those wages and we would get those uh, raises. Uh, whereas in the private sector now, uh, for example, uh, the guys I, I work with, four guys, we all have the same title or the same position, if you want to call it that. And I've worked with them for seven years myself, and some of them have been there close to 20. We don't know what each other makes. We don't talk about that. Yeah, that that's 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 kind of the case, and I think that that's I don't know why um, whether people if they're making a lot of money they feel guilty they're making so much, and if they're not making much they feel embarrassed <laughs> they're not making so much. But certainly, that would be the case, and I think that's probably more the case now where 
most most people don't know, and 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 it's 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 tricky, you know, because in businesses you can there are ways. I remember from my years working in, in financial, you know, reporting in my early um, career that yeah you can you can look up and find out what the top executives make, but then you but you can't really find out what anybody else makes. Right. Right. Well, uh, staying on the uh, idea of the unions there, I sense anyway that there has been over the last many years an effort to break the unions, which would, I, I guess, Im- impact the living wage. It has been, um, you know, an effort to, I think, by businesses to at least get away from unions, if not necessarily break them. Um, and so, for example, there's been a, a great movement to the South, which has right-to-work laws, which means you don't have to join the union. <laughs> and so that's kind of kept a lot of companies, they've, they've transferred a lot of their manufacturing to the to the South for that reason. And that's kind of eroded the strength unions had. And then there are other, there are other, a lot of other factors as well, but but yes, to give you another example, to go just look at the minimum wage. As I said, unions were big supporters of raising the minimum wage. Well, by 1968, the minimum wage was raised to a dollar sixty an hour. Well, adjusted for inflation, that would be like eleven dollars and fifty cents now. So the minimum wage—that was the peak of the minimum wage in terms of adjusted for inflation, 1968. The union started declining in the 70s, and the minimum wage has been eroded by inflation ever since. And so that—that's one sign of it, of of what's happened with a living wage, and with um, and the decline of unions. Why did we do that? Um, why did that happen? Why did, if we were as a society building the living wage through uh, the unions you're talking about and everything else and the growth of, of the economy, why did we let that uh, fall apart and and lose the 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 living wage we had at eleven dollars in 1968? Well, that's a that's kind of a tricky question because I think um, part of it, part of it is just changes in the economy. I've read union journals, and in the early 60s, the American Federation of Labor, CIO, the main headquarters, did a study, and they said, you know, our membership is not keeping up with employment. That, you know, 12 million new jobs were created in the last decade, and we only got 2 million new members. That's not a good path for us. What's going on? Well, manufacturing is is kind of losing importance and the services and white-collar jobs are gaining in importance. And we're not doing a good job of, of unionizing those white-collar workers. And so they could kind of see that they were, they were some trouble coming without even thinking about the fact that, that a lot of businesses were also working to try to figure out how to, you know, how to avoid unions mm-hmm. as best they could. Um, so there were some kind of structural parts in the economy that, that caused some decline in the union. And some of it was, yeah, the, the unions didn't figure out a good way to organize, you know, white collar, kind of white collar or pink collar, you might call it, jobs, mm-hmm. kind of clerical and back of jobs. 
And those jobs have just kept changing with technology, too. And so it's a, it's a lot harder to kind of keep up with. Um, you know, you organize a bunch of typists, and then they suddenly get replaced by computers. And, and so there are lots of problems that unions face in addition to sort of being being sort of, um, what call it, having businesses try to use different ways to break them. If you're just joining us, uh, we're talking about wages today here on Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. We have one more break to take. We'll be right back. We have lots more to talk about, so stay with us. You're listening to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow here on KUAR in Little Rock. I'm Phil Marriage with my guest, Dr. Donald Stabile. He's on sabbatical right now from St. Mary's College in Maryland, where he's a professor of economics since 1980 and is the author of The Living Wage, Lessons from the History of Economic Thought, and also the other book, The Political Economy of a Living Wage, Progressives, The New Deal, and Social Justice. By the way, I believe these are all available on Amazon. That's where I found them. Is that true? That's correct, yes. Very good. We spent the first sections of our program today talking a lot about the historical parts of it, especially coming from the Depression. One of the things I I gained from reading some of of your books, sir, was that we may be mimicking, or are we mimicking, some of the things that happened pre-Great Depression and post-Great Depression. Are are we replaying some of the same things, or are we actually doing anything different when it comes to the living wage? Well, we're doing some similar things. One of the things that happened that, that I kind of discovered in my work is there was a lot of interest in the living wage using the term a living wage. But starting in the 1940s, the term a living wage went away. So I, I did a search of articles in between 1940 and 1990. I only found four articles written on the idea of a living wage. Wow. But instead what happened was that in 1944, President Roosevelt and maybe he thought he needed to, you know, reframe what he was doing, he set forth in the State of the Union address in 1944 something called a Second Bill of Rights. And they were basically what he called economic rights. And the first one was that everybody had a right to a useful job at remunerative rates of pay. Now, that sounds like a living wage to me. Mm-hmm. Yes. But... But he stopped. He didn't say a living wage. He said a right to a job at reasonable rates of pay, and that sort of became in kind of progressive circles and even among the unions. That became the new version of a living wage. And so the the unions and especially the CIO constantly, yes, we want Roosevelt's Bill of Rights. That's the great plan for America. And he also, you know, he includes other rights, like a right to a decent house, a right to education, um, a few other things. So we kind of reframed the debate and left the term a living wage out. And as I said, it, it disappeared. And then what happened is, in 1990, a group of activists in Baltimore, they kind of recognized, well, we want to help these people who were working and making low wages, but unions aren't going to do anything for them because unions are kind of in, having their own problems. The minimum wage, it's going to be tough to get that increased. And somehow they went back and found the term a living wage and, and revived it, said, we're going to go out and fight for a living wage. And some of the things they did were, were again, very, very similar to what, what took place in the 19. 19- 
20s and 30s is they said, okay, we're going to try to convince especially local governments and universities first. It's shameful that they're not paying their workers a living wage. And that would then serve as a kind of role model for business to say, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, if government can pay a living wage, we ought to be able to pay one too. That was their kind of like new strategy that they came up with. But that's evolved over time to where now, you know, if we think about Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders right. was willing to stand up and say, you know, I want a living wage, $15 an hour. And that's something that hadn't happened in politics, you know, since Roosevelt, probably, that somebody stood right up and said something like that. I mean, uh, I think Harry Truman probably came close to saying things like that, but I think the Sanders um, campaign put the living wage back into a national agenda again, much as Roosevelt in his early years of the New Deal, because he used the term of living wage often as well. I found a number of his speeches um, that he used and so that's kind of put it back back on the, on the agenda as a concept for, like, I guess, 25 years now. But then the other thing that, that they're also pushing for is better Social Security. Let's try to increase the minimum wage, and let's try to revive unions. There are methods that they're trying to use to revive unions in this living wage movement now. How successful do you think they will be, or are they? They're not successful so far. I mean, the number of workers they've gotten a living wage for is still fairly small compared to the, the estimate is that like 40% of the workforce earns less than what would be considered a living wage. And so they haven't made much in that. On the other hand, now, especially if the economy is doing much better, a lot of businesses are looking at their wage policies and they are paying their workers above the minimum wage and getting them more towards what would be a living wage. So is that part of mimicking what happened after the Great Depression, too, that that we are recognizing it? I think it might be. The dilemma is this. The the other thing I've, I've sort of found in this is that the New Deal got all its, um, you know, these things passed, I said, between 1935 and 1938 within three years. There were no more reforms along these lines until Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. So there's a long period, and so it seems like there's just these rare windows where the political stars are aligned, and so you get something in place, and you're able to make a change. And then there suddenly becomes a more conservative reaction against that, and things kind of calm down for a while until, I'd say, you know, 20 10 or so whenever the um, you know, health care was added mm-hmm. to it. That was the next big reform. But there was not much reform again for another 30 or so some odd years. So that's a dilemma, I think, is how when will the stars be aligned again? With the New Deal, the Great Depression just gave the Democrats like super majorities, and they were able to push things through. The same thing, Lyndon Johnson got a big majority in the was the 64 election and had a big majority in Congress, and that enabled him to get some things through, mm-hmm. but that mm-hmm. sort of doesn't last very long. Is there much of a relationship between wages or the living wage and the distribution of wealth? Yeah, to some extent there is. When when we talk about wealth, we're talking about, and, and this is the tricky part of it, 
we're talking about you know assets that people own, and we're talking about wages. We're talking about income, and what you have to have in order to build up wealth is enough income to be able to save. And one of the kind of tenets of the original living wage was, well, yeah, workers need to make enough money not only to raise a family, to have a kind of decent lifestyle, and to be able to save for retirement. How, how have we done on that regard, savings? And savings, we are not doing very well. <laughs> I would say most most people who are working, you know, in everything I read on the internet about people saving for retirement and all is that most people just haven't done a good job. And that was one of the reasons why it it, it was decided back in the thirties that we needed social security pensions because people couldn't say we were going to set up this system where we kind of force them to save and force their employers to also Mm-hmm. kick in some money so they would have something to retire on. And there's some some economists would argue, well, now that workers know that that's taking place, that that kind of, they don't have as much incentive to save. Because they say, oh, well, I don't need to save, I'll have Social Security when I retire. So does that uh, lead us towards when whatever expendable money we have, we actually expend it, we use it? Yes, yes, that's pretty much... Um, Probably most of the saving is done by people in the upper, you know, the kind of upper income brackets. And most everyone else, you know, spends most of it. And that's important because savings is how you build wealth. And so, for example, I can, from my own story, and this just amazes me when I, when I see this, way back in, when I first started teaching, I was teaching at a, a small college in the Midwest, and we had... It was like, it's like a, a 401k, except it's a different number for college professors, where they would take money out of my paycheck. I didn't pay taxes on it. It would go into this fund. Well, I worked there for two years and then got a job at St. Mary's. Well, when I turned 70 and a half, I had to start taking money out of that account. And I found that what I, I given five, maybe $5,000 into this account, it was now worth about $70,000. Um, and that's just because the stock market has done so well. From you know, in 1982, the Dow Jones is, was at a thousand, and now it's I don't know, <laughs> 24 something I guess, depending on what's been doing this afternoon. So that's a big growth in wealth. And so from that, just for me, just by kind of regularly putting money into this, these retirement accounts, I've accumulated. Not up there in the you know Warren Buffett category, but but enough to you know to afford to retire whenever I feel like it, and that's kind of a difference because to the extent that people who are making you know I, it's easy for me I've always had kind of a what we call a minimalist lifestyle, but for people who have families and and want to have cars and big houses and all that they just don't have much opportunity. Most people in the U.S., I think that most of their savings would be whatever they can sell their house for. How important is wages to, let's say, the the young people in the uh, millennials or the young ones that aren't even hit at the working force yet? What what do they expect in the way of wages? That's kind of a dilemma because it depends on what economists call their human capital, which is how much skill and training do they have to what sort of jobs. Now, 
most of my students who are economics majors, they've gone to college and they have an idea, I'm going here because I want to get skills to get a better job. And most of them wind up doing, some of them doing okay. I've had some who have done extremely well in, in getting a good wage and able to put away money for, to, um, you know, in, invest and let your wealth grow. Probably your average high school student who goes out looking for a job has a tougher time of it. There's always been a, some of a premium between high school graduates and college graduates, and right now I think it's like at almost like an all-time high that, that going to college gives you so much more income than just finishing high school. That's kind of a dilemma with all the people who, for one reason or another, um, don't feel capable of going to college or for whatever reason they choose not to go to college. They typically are having a tougher time of it. And that probably is going to stay that way? It, it may even get worse? It may get worse. What we never know is changes in technology. That can change, you know, like right now, let's say, you know, a college student who, has, who studies computer science is going to go out and get a great job. But if some technology comes along that suddenly... We don't need them anymore. Like robotics? Um, yeah, robotics, artificial intelligence, <laughs> yeah. all of that. Then, that. then that could change. And maybe the guy who has to put the oil on the robot is going to get a better job. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned in, in your book there, one of your uh, three headings there was the, uh, the part about justice, right? Social justice? I was thinking about our time, the times that all of our generations are living right now. How is social justice as it relates to wages, how is that viewed by what we would say people on the right compared to people on the left? Has that changed from the past, and what really does it look like for the future? Are we are we a divided society even when it comes to the social justice part of about the living wage? I think so. I think that for most people on the right, there's no such thing as social justice, and they would argue that in the economy, you're paid because you're productive. And if you don't have a lot of skills and you're not productive, you're not going to get paid very much. If you have a lot of skills and you are going to be productive, you're going to get paid a lot more. Now, productive is defined by selling your, you know, your skills on the market. And so if you have very top-level rare skills, that are valued by the market, you're going to do very well. And if you don't have skills, you're not going to do very well. So that, that in itself would create kind of a divide. And the, I think the right says there's not much you can do about that. You know, yeah, we, maybe we should get better training programs for um, the people without skills or, you know, do other things to kind of help them, encourage businesses to, to hire them and train them. Maybe a little bit of that. On the left, the idea of social justice is everybody should kind of share in, you know, in the affluence that our society produced. And therefore, we need to give people a living wage no matter what their productivity is um, so that they can have a, a share of that. And that part of it hasn't changed. If you go back and read in the 20s and 30s, you'll hear pretty similar, very similar arguments. You know, that in terms of the minimum wage, for example, if you go to increase it, the right has always said, no, then people will be having to pay, be paying workers more than they're worth, and you won't 
business won't do that. They'll just lay them off. And people on the on the left saying, no, no, you know, those people are not being paid very much because they don't have a lot of bargaining power. Businesses are taking advantage of them. This is just getting up to where they should be. That that much hasn't changed over time. I think it's kind of the hardest one to both define and defend. When uh, Eisenhower became elected, and he came in and said, you know, this New Deal stuff, Social Security pensions, minimum wage and all that, everybody seems to like them, so I'm not going to do anything to change them. The other important thing I, I think about wages, for most people over time, most everybody's wages increase over the course of their lifetime. When we talk about people on a minimum wage, well, that's, you know, yeah, entry level, working at McDonald's, something like that. Most people somehow find a way to climb out of McDonald's and get up to a better job and, and show improving wages over time. Well, what's important about this is we often see in the distribution of income, and we talk about, well, the 1% get whatever, 20% of the, of the, of the salaries, and the bottom 20% only get about 5% of the, of the pay. The problem with that is, it's over, you know, over time, it's different people. And so that a lot of that people who started out at the bottom of the 20% over the course of their lifetime are going to climb up into um, higher levels. And sometimes the people who are in the top 1%, you know, fall out and new people come in. Any number of, you know, especially if you think of um, different celebrities, you know, recording artists who suddenly fall out of fashion and after their one big hit, they drop down to nothing again. And even in, in, in business, you know, some companies where their CEOs making big bucks and then something happens, technology changes, and they're just kind of out, out in the middle of nowhere. Right. And so there is a lot of movement in this distribution of income. Um, and so, and I think the idea behind a living wage is to at least get people started off at a, at a decent level so they can they can have have a good life and and to protect some people who aren't able to get into a position where there is some kind of upward mobility. I hope you've enjoyed this in-depth generational discussion on wages today. My guest has been Dr. Donald Stabile. He's on sabbatical right now from St. Mary's College in Maryland, uh, where he's a professor of economics, and he's the author of the two books we've really been talking a lot about here today, The Living Wage, Lessons from the History of Economic Thought, and the other one is The Political Economy of a Living Wage, Progressives, the New Deal, and social justice, and he's also working on a third book. Have you got a title for the uh, next one, or what, what's the topic? Um, right now, it's I'm calling it Macroeconomic Policy and the Winning Wage. Oh, okay. Okay, well, we'll look forward to that. And all of these are available on Amazon.com. So uh, I wanted to uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Stabil, for being with us here today. It's been a great discussion. I hope you enjoyed it. Okay, I did. I've enjoyed it very much. You can download this and other Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow programs from the KUAR.org site. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next month.